This presentation has three beginnings or three introductions and I believe they're important for understanding the origins, the direction and the purposes of my lecture this evening. The first beginning, the terms under which I accepted the invitation to KU Leuven almost two years ago included delivering a public lecture in a visiting capacity as part of the series Theology for Theology of Liberation in the African Context. And it was under the auspices of the Center for Liberation Theologies. Since then, the project has transformed into a much larger and laudable initiative of an intercontinental exchange between this university, Hakima University College, and Tangaza University College. And as the project has evolved, so also the theme now presently published as History Matters for the Study of Africa's Present, Exchanging Methods and Sources. And today we have had a taste of that continuing from the conversations in Nairobi. The title of this evening's lecture, though, indicates that my own thoughts have developed within the framework of the original idea. And I'm very much aware that Professor Dr. Mario Aguilar, Dr. Nontando Adebe, and Dr. Lawrence Wankuo have preceded me on this well-regarded podium. The second beginning is, if you like, a disclaimer. This lecture is not an orthodox theological disquisition. I am one for thinking that part of the profile of a theologian requires her or him to push the boundaries of orthodoxy in bold, constructive, and positive attempts to probe the importance of Christian revelation while simultaneously scrutinizing the signs of the times. I consider it a legacy of the pioneers of theology of liberation, this radical fidelity to the gospel and a commitment to explore new hermeneutical paradigms that honor the joys and the hopes, the griefs and the anxieties of the people of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted. The ideas that I present this evening, I, for one, consider them to be half-baked. <coughs> for the simple reason that I wish to take the discourse to some degree of perhaps provocation, and thus hopefully engender some meaningful and constructive conversation and debate, always in view of action. A conversation about liberation creates a confluence between theology, properly speaking, and ethics. And I think, for me, the choice of word, confluence, is important and deliberate. I intend by it to underscore the inseparability of discourse and action as a methodological axiom of theology of liberation. And I would welcome alternative, complementary, differing views as part of the conversation. Just as an aside, since I mentioned theology and ethics, and Professor Gruber mentioned uh, theological ethics as one of the areas where I have uh, engaged in, about a month ago, November of this year, Charles Camozzi, an associate professor of Christian ethics, Fordham University openly questioned my credentials for speaking about things theological and ethical. In an article published in Church Life Journal entitled The Crisis of Catholic Moral Theology, Professor Camosi assigned me to the group of people, quote, he calls 
people of color who take orthodox academic positions, unquote, as opposed to, quote, people of color who are heterodox and dissenting, end of quote. For the professor, while the academic, what he calls the academic hegemony or the discipline promotes the former, that is people in my camp, it marginalizes, marginalizes the latter. He continues, quote, despite not being trained in theological ethics, has risen to astonishing prominence in the discipline. But Notre Dame's Polinos Odozo, an established moral theologian with university press books directly related to lifting up authentically African voices and ideas in moral theology, has not gained similar prominence. Orobato and Odozo have had very public debates. But unfortunately for Odozo, his academically heterodox views means that those who hold power will keep him out of the leadership club, end of quote. Now far be it from me to contest Professor Kamosi's verdict on the state of Catholic moral theology in the United States today as fractured and polarized and only preoccupied with power. These are his words. But to intentionally, needlessly, and gratuitously pit two African theologians against each other, neither of whom have anything to do with the cultural words that he says is dividing the church in America, I believe betrays a lack of intellectual fairness and professional decorum. And by the way, I have written a personal letter to Professor Kamonsi. In this presentation, I purpose to lift up, as he said, authentically African voices and ideas, and to stimulate a public debate, not a popularity contest. In all its forms, I believe, the genuine exercise and enterprise of theology abhors any surreptitious quest for celebrity status, for fame, or for prominence. As I hope to demonstrate, there are more critical issues for us to consider, both regionally, locally, and globally. Accordingly, in this lecture, I am interested first in examining stories of two Africans whose lives and ideas liberate and empower others. In order, second, to identify parallels with the ideals and values of theology of liberation. And third, to draw meaningful lessons for those of us who continue to apply our trade as professional members of the Theological Academy and those who aspire to be part of this community. Now I come to the third beginning, which is a story, actually two stories, about a man and a woman. At an event like this, I cannot resist the temptation to indulge in storytelling. As some in the audience may have noticed or may yet discover, I introduced my recent book, Religion and Faith in Africa, Confessions of an Animist, with the words, quote, Africa breeds stories. And where I come from, we speak in stories and proverbs. End of quote. The story about the man. On the 5th of October, 2018, the Norwegian Nobel Committee awarded the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize jointly to Denis Mukwege and Nadia Murad.
for their efforts to end the use of sexual violence as a weapon of war and armed conflict. <clears throat> Dennis Mukwege was born on the 1st of March, 1955, in Bokavo, Belgian Congo, now the Democratic Republic <clears throat> of the Congo. He trained as a medical doctor, specialized as a gynecological surgeon, and has spent the greater part of his adult and professional life helping victims of sexual violence in DLC. In 1999, Mukwege founded the Pansy Hospital in Bukavu. Since then, he himself and his team of dedicated staff have treated thousands of victims of violent sexual assaults. Most of the abuses were committed in the context of a protracted civil war that has claimed more than 6 million Congolese lives. In 2011, Mokwege co-founded a sanctuary for healing and a center for leadership called City of Joy in Bukavu. Now, City of Joy offers women who have been raped a place to heal, to rebuild their lives, and train to go back to their communities, not as outcasts, but as leaders. According to the Norwegian Nobel Committee, quote, Dennis Mukwege is the most important and unifying symbol, both nationally and internationally, of the struggle to end sexual violence in war and armed conflict. His basic principle is that justice is everybody's business. End of quote. And the committee continues, quote, Dennis Mukwege is the helper who has devoted his life to defending these victims. Nadia Murad is the witness who tells of the abuses perpetrated against herself and others, unquote. By the testimony of a female colleague, Eve Ensler, the announcement quote of the Nobel Peace Prize for Dennis Mukwege with his co-winner, Nadia Murad, is a deeply deserving recognition of an extraordinary man who has risked everything to heal, to cherish, and to honor women. It is a call to men across the planet to do the same." Unquote. Another commentator writes, quote, Dennis Mukwege remains a symbol of an African continent that dares to stand tall and reject any attempt to inscribe its destiny in dark and blood-soaked pages by barbaric warriors whose atavistic instinct is to kill, to rape, and to loot. Death will never have the last word in Africa as long as there are women and men like Dennis Mukwege." End quote. Now the story about the woman. The second story is also about an African Nobel Peace Laureate, the late Kenyan environmental activist, Wangari Mutha Mata. Born on 1st April 1940, Matai rose to global prominence through her work to address what the naturalist Sir David Attenborough, speaking at last week's United Nations-sponsored climate talk in Poland, described as, quote, man's a man-made disaster of global scale, our greatest threat in thousands of years, climate change, unquote. During her lifetime, Mathai was the face of the struggle against this disaster. She founded the Green Belt Movement, helped women to plant over 30 million trees as the first African woman to be honored with the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004, Wangari Mathai was recognized for her contribution to sustainable development, democracy, and peace. According to the Nobel Committee, quote, at the front, she stood at the front of the fight to promote ecologically viable social, economic, and cultural development in Kenya and in Africa. She has taken a holistic approach to sustainable development that embraces democracy, human rights, and women's rights in particular. She thinks globally, but acts locally." Unquote. 
Mathai stood up courageously against oppressive regimes in Kenya. She was an inspiration for many in the fight for democracy, and she especially encouraged women to better their situation, or what she calls the principle of self-betterment. Wangari Mathai believed deeply that today we are faced with a challenge that calls for a shift in our thinking so that humanity stops threatening its own life support system. We're called to assist the earth to heal her wounds and in the process, heal our own wounds. Indeed, to embrace the whole of creation in all its diversity, beauty, and wonder. Here was a woman who would have agreed wholeheartedly with Sir David Attenborough that, quote, if we don't take action, the collapse of our civilization and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon, unquote. So keenly aware that the generation that destroys the environment is not the generation that pays the price, Wangari Mathai resolved to do something about it. It is the little things citizens do. That's what will make the difference, she declared. My little thing is planting trees. Wangari Mathai died on the 25th of September, 2011. On the face of it, the stories of these two contemporary Nobel laureates follow very divergent trajectories. And there seems to be no obvious reasons to commend them for consideration at the theological forum such as ours here today. After all, neither of them was a theologian, much less a theologian of liberation. Neither of them would qualify as a scholar according to the terms by which we define that status in the hallowed halls of erudition and academia. Yet, I am convinced that Mukwege and Madan, like so many other icons, embody and exemplify authentically African voices and ideas, and that their lives matter for the study, for understanding Africa's present. To quote U.S. theologian, the veteran Sandra Schneiders, this woman and this man are fundamentally committed to helping others seek life-giving answers to the really important questions of human existence. Unquote. And this commitment entailed significant risk to their lives. Because I believe that one of the relevance of these two authentically African voices and ideas, and the ideas for which they live, is not far removed from the authentic values of theology of the liberation. You see, the correlation of liberation and theology, or theology and liberation, gave the tradition, this theological tradition, a critical edge and sealed the inseparability of theological scholarship and the really important questions of human existence. This may sound rather gratuitous, but I believe it will be a disservice to the venerable tradition of theology of liberation to treat it as pure and simple academic study. There are those for whom theology of liberation evinces a feeble memory, perhaps a fading past or even a passing fan. <clears throat> I hold the contrary opinion, namely, that outside of the academy, 
The ideals and values of this tradition of liberation persist in the heroic witnesses and witnessing of unsung icons. People like Dennis McQuaid and This is a question. What has liberation theology done differently and radically? What are its ideals and values? How compatible are they with the narratives of people like Mathai and Mokwege? And I will just summarize my responses in a few brief points. First, theology of liberation redefined the locus of theological enterprise by turning our gaze from the center to include, to include the margins or the periphery, as Francis the Pope would say. Consequently, the human subject of authentic discourse on revelation would no longer be ignored or relativized in sanguine and anodyne palaver about abstractions and superficialities conducted by a satiated group of social and ecclesiastical elites. Instead, credible theological quest bears direct relevance to real lives. Real lives, especially lives of the marginalized, the dispossessed, the impoverished, the dehumanized in our midst. In other words, as understood by someone like Jan Sobrino, theology could no longer, quote, ignore those human beings for whom the fundamental fact of living is a heavy burden, a hard struggle in the midst of total insecurity and precarious condition, even concerning the most elementary question of where the next meal was going to come from, unquote. Henceforth, the sacred texts of the Christian religion were to be read through the eyes and from the perspectives of the list of God's own people. And framing the question of issues like poverty in any of its insidious manifestations is no longer the exclusive domains of politicians, economists, much less of anthropologists and sociologists, it constituted and still constitutes, constitutes a valid, if not the, theological question. The locus in which people like Dennis Mukwege and Mathai operate offers a very vivid characterization of the notion of periphery. For Mathai, that space is the interstices between the poor and the fragility of the planet. For Mukwege, it is in the theater of sexual violence against innocent women as a weapon of war and armed conflict. Second, in the process of shifting our locus and our focus to include the periphery, Theology of liberation has developed for us a radical profile of Christology. In the simplest of terms, however we choose to answer the question, who do people say that I am? Taking the historical Jesus as a point of departure, an authentic Christological title would have to be Jesus Christ, liberate. In this perspective, I would say Jesus loses, shall we say, his placid iconography and becomes the one who not only lifts up and affirms the dignity and humanity of the crucified and oppressed people, but also denounces and repudiates in prophetic words and self-sacrificing deeds those systems, institutions, personalities, forces that enslave and brutalize humanity. A third point, the tradition of theology of liberation 
validates the contextual nature of the theological enterprise. Yes, born in Latin America, it was informed, shaped, challenged, defined by the harsh realities of the crucified people, to use the words of John Sobrino. In a language that will resonate with the work of Mukwege and Matai, the iconic South African <coughs> bishop, Desmond Tutu, eloquently expressed this ideal as follows, quote, liberation theology, more than any other type of theology, arises from the crucible of human anxiety and suffering. It arises because people are crying, until when? Oh God, why? All liberation theology comes from the struggle to give meaning to human suffering when those who suffer are victims of organized oppression and exploitation. When they are mutilated and treated like beings who are inferior to what they really are, these are human persons created in the image and likeness of the triune God, redeemed by the single Savior, Jesus Christ, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is the origin of all liberation theology, and therefore of all black theology, which is the theology of the liberation of Africa, unquote. A fourth point, drawing on the preceding point, liberation theology focuses our attention on human existence. That is the here and now of human experience. And I believe the theologian commits a theological flaw if she or he seeks only to impose predetermined categories of belief and thought on human reality in an undifferentiated manner. Because it is open to the movements of history and the vicissitude of, of human existence, theological discourse is open to change and transformation. I know that's probably a dangerous thing to say. But I'm really convinced of this, that permanently settled questions are but figments in the mind of the ivory tower theologian. Because the topography of theology of liberation is not academic, it is existential. It is not, to quote something, it's not about orthodoxy, it's about orthopraxis. Perhaps more importantly, it is even aspirational. Without neglecting history, the task of theology implies gradual and patient work that tends to create an inclusive society that does not yet exist. The next point, which is the faith. Not only in Christology, but I believe that one of the legacies and enduring legacies of this tradition of theology is giving us the possibility to satisfy the wish of so many of our popes <coughs> from John the 23rd to until now Pope Francis for a church that is a church of the poor. The emergence and development of basic ecclesial communities stands, I believe, as an enduring testimony to this new way of being church. Also, it is a testimony to the role of the laity in defining and shaping the identity of the Christian community properly considered as the people of God. The sixth ideal and value. Given the above, or the foregoing, the enterprise of theological discourse could no longer be authentic or relevant if theologians only engaged in closed self-referential <coughs> exercise. Through the methodological preference and option for social analysis, other disciplines we now concede need to be engaged in order for theology to take an accurate measure of the situation and condition of the subject matter. The impressive body of knowledge developed by the theology of liberation shows a kind of scholarship where the most incisive tools 
of social sciences have been applied to the analysis of theological and ethical questions, situations, and concerns. My seventh point. Judging by the historical evolution of theology of liberation globally, the concept of liberation now seems, I would think, quite plastic. Why do I say that? I say that because it stretches, it expands, and encompasses a multiplicity of situations where human dignity is threatened, undermined, and disfigured. Speaking of plasticity, the process of liberation can also be disaggregated demographically without creating distinct pockets of thought and action. Because, and I take this example from the conversation we had already today, the oppressive structures of injustice, diseases, and poverty are eminently <coughs> gendered. We know that now. And we know that the doctrines, the dogmas, the concepts that we apply are not gender neutral. We know that now. Thanks to the work of people like Yvonne Guevara, Elsa Temes, Maria Pilar Aquino, Maria Isasi Diaz, Theresia Hinga, Mercy Oduyoye, Philomena Muaura, and so many others. And also continuing this notion of plasticity, the process of liberation we now know is inclusive even of global crises like climate change. Because the earth, our common home, is threatened by the destructive practices of elite and privileged minorities. Hence the necessity of formulating a theological and ethical contribution to the urgent task of protecting and preserving the integrity of creation in all its forms. The rationale for an eco-theological engagement stems from the realization of the vital interrelatedness, or as someone put it this afternoon, epistemological interconnectedness of human ecology and natural ecology. Or as Francis Pope would put it in Laudato Si, quote, the God who liberates and saves is the same God who creates the universe. And these two divine ways of acting are intimately, inseparably connected. Unquote. And he goes on to say, we are faced not with two crises, one environmental, the other social, no, but rather with one complex crisis, which is both social and environmental. And so strategies for a solution demand an integrated approach to combating poverty, restoring dignity to the excluded, and at the same time protecting nature. And Martha would have said the same thing when she said that healing the earth is at the same time healing ourselves. Eighth, notwithstanding the spirited opposition from various sources to theology of liberation, we recall the many instructions. <clears throat> Its history shows an astonishing level of collaboration between theologians and ecclesial leaders, especially when you look at the experience of Latin America. And I think these are still useful references when you look at those important documents from Ceylon, Pueblo, in Puebla, in Medellin. I think these are still useful references for how to forge a critical and constructive collaboration in the community culture amongst all levels. And finally, my final point. An important dimension of theology of liberation is the question of leadership. To date, its champions and proponents have been women and men that I would say are of prophetic character. Today we heard about John Mark Ella, and there are many of them. The evidence lies in the fact that many practice what they preach. 
many of its proponents practice what they preach. For example, by forging strong bonds of friendship with the subject of their theological scholarship. We heard about Jean-Marc Elard, who went to the northern part of, uh, who took a sabbatical. <clears throat> who took a sabbatical, where I would have gone to Milwaukee, he went to the northern part of Cameroon. This kind of friendship and leadership continues to be important for our day and age. Because the prophetic and conscientious exercise of leadership in whatever sphere of discipline, I believe, constitutes an effective means of liberation. And we see this in the lives of Mokwege and Mazar. So let me say something now of a reflection on the vocation of a theologian in light of the ideals and values of theology of liberation set in the context of these two African Americans, Mukwege and Matari. I have been convinced for a long time, and it troubles me not to say it publicly or to repeat it publicly, that however it is defined, theology ought to make a difference in the lives of people, especially the underprivileged. It cannot be a license. It cannot be a license to stay in an ivory town. Like these icons, theologians ought not be isolated or insulated from the harsh realities of the list of Jesus' sisters and brothers. On Monday this week, in his Nobel Prize lecture, Mukwege stated emphatically, quote, Turning a blind eye to this tragedy is being complicit. It is not just perpetrators of violence who are responsible for their crimes. It is also those who choose to look the other way. To act is to reject indifference. End of quote. If we take seriously the legacy, the tradition, and the principle, the ideals, and the values of the theology of liberation, I am convinced that a theologian enjoys neither the option nor the luxury to look the other way. And that is why, for example, in the optic of theology of liberation, a humanitarian or charitable response is never adequate. It's never adequate. It is laudable, but it's never a solution that is adequate to socioeconomic exclusion, marginalization, impoverishment, dispossession, dislocation, displacement. All of these are consequences. They are symptoms of a deeper, much deeper structural ills. And we know structures have roots, deep roots, like violence and armed conflict, corruption and human rights abuses, sexual gender-based violence, and child sexual abuse. Think about it. Millions of Syrian refugees are symptoms of a regional and global complicity in a violent sectarian politics. Hundreds of thousands of starving Yemeni children, when you think of it, are victims of the compact of mutually reinforcing economic and political interests. Hundreds of thousands of economically disempowered and socially disillusioned youth in the Niger Delta of Nigeria are byproducts of environmental injustices evidenced by the pollution of, of swathes of land, the pollution of air and water. What about thousands of sexually abused children in our church? I didn't say what is Pope Francis who reminds us. But these are but victims of a culture of death that is anchored in the practice of a cancerous clericalism. I could go on, but the point is, 
It is for their struggle against these systemic structures of injustice and oppression that Mukwege and Mathai have attracted and received duly global attention and accolade. As theologians, while ours is not to hanker after fame and glory, a radical commitment to resist such structures of oppression, wherever they may exist, I underline this, wherever they may exist, in my institution, in my church, and outside, resisting such structures of injustice <coughs> is part of my job description. It's part of my profile, my job profile. The Norwegian Nobel Committee called Mukwege the helper and Nadia Murad the witness. Notice the biblical resonances. One is the helper, the other is the witness. And I read in Maria Clara Bingham's book, Latin American Theology Roots and Branches, quote, more than ever, we need a theology of witnesses, of spiritual masters, more than erudite and abstract text. End of quote. And I agree with her. I hold a firm conviction that by the exercise of her or his research and scholarship, the theologian models the truth and reality of revelation, diachronically across time and synchronically in time for the Christian community or the community of faith. In other words, she or he is tasked with raising the question, what has revelation looked like? And what does revelation look like? What should revelation look like? In other words, this theologian takes up the age-old question of Prophet Micah. What does the living God require of you at a particular moment and over a period of history? Notice then that I speak of modeling and witnessing. I adopt this stance because I would like to underscore the point that the exigencies <laughs> of theological vocation are neither exhausted nor embodied in simple rhetoric. Words are not enough. The theologian bears an imperious duty to conduct her or his affairs in a manner of one who bears witness to and helps to birth the truth in season and out of season, at risk to her or his life. My position is that witnesses and models, or what I will call icons, exist. And the task of a present-day theologian involves, involves discovering and reading their lives as living texts to inform theological enterprise. So in this sense for me, I see the icons or exemplars of liberation as not necessarily its theological exponents, such as we have seen, for example, in the Latin American tradition. Rather, under present circumstances, and using Africa as a test case, the icons and exemplars of liberation are women and men who embody and exercise courageously and creatively the transforming and emancipating dimension of witnessing through the gospel. These icons, they lean heavily on the axis of praxis. They may not be vocal, eloquent, and stirring orators. What they lack, or perhaps even loathe, in rhetoric 
they compensate with prophetic, transformative, and life-affirming practice. Speaking of living text, I imagine a time when theological curriculum will include a course with a title, for example, like Prophetic Biographies, or to borrow something from Francis, Sense Next Door, or in the optic of our conversation this evening, Icons of Liberation. Courses where we bring the tools of theological scholarship to explore, to probe, to plumb the depth of faith, both religious and secular, the strength of character, the motivation and hope of women and men whose lives speak of the prophetic invitation of God to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This leads me to consider one of the most distincting features of this theological tradition that we are considering today, liberation. And that is the prophetic vocation of the theologian of liberation. As I say it, the credibility and enduring appeal for me personally of this tradition of theology is that it demonstrates the witness of life of its proponents. Erudition and rhetoric do not confer credibility. No. Deeds and capacity for prophetic witness do. And if we need examples, we need not look beyond the long list of matters of this tradition, from Utio Grande to Oscar Romero. And carrying on to Jean-Marc Ella, <clears throat> Ignacio Lacouria, and so many others. I think also of Mangari Mathai, who gave her life for the cause of protecting and caring for our common home. And Dennis Mukwege, who continues to suffer threats to his personal security as he seeks justice for innocent victims of sexual violence as a weapon. Of the world. And I want to recall now the words of Sandra Schneiders, where she says, quote, the true teacher, especially one whose, whose integrity is not for sale, no matter how high the offer, is always in danger from institutional power. And I would say the theologian should always be in danger from institutional power. And that's not a deterrent. That's just part of our job profile. So I'm convinced that even in its attenuated form, this prophetic streak continues to define and distinguish the tradition of liberation theology. Now, speaking of witnesses, Pope Francis readily comes to mind. And I know someone is going to accuse me, of course, how, why would you not mention Pope Francis? Is he not a Jesuit? Well, no, I, no I, I know he's a Jesuit, okay? I know he's a Jesuit. Sometimes it's very easy, you know, when they ask you at immigration, when you're, you know, figuring out, you know, trying to get your passport stamped, what do you do? I'm a Jesuit. What is a Jesuit? Like the Pope. And they get that. <laughs> <laughs> So Francis comes to mind, especially because of his publicly documented and unvarnished rapport with the poor, but also and more importantly, as an embodiment of what I would call a non-militant yet prophetic commitment to the praxis of liberation of the excluded and the marginalized, the unregarded. And I am so convinced that by so doing, Francis is engaging the real questions of today. Not first of all in theory, but in terms of people whose lives are touched and transformed. 
whose lives are touched and transformed by his witness. And I think this is a lesson for us theologians today. That the experience of people outside as well as inside the institutional church, the laity as well as clergy, women as well as men, the poor, uneducated, incarcerated and ill, as well as those in the halls of power, they are not threats to what we do. <coughs> they are catalysts for us to manifest and bear witness as theologians. Finally, and I conclude here. At the end of her book, Maria Clara Bingerman, she writes, this glorious past of Latin American theology, which includes a fertile and abundant body of theological work, and is sealed by the witness of many martyrs and confessors, continues to enlighten and inspire those who desire to build a different world. Therefore, this memory is and will always be a subversive memory that no power or oppressor can erase." Unquote. For those who know how to look, the fundamental ideals, dreams, principles, and desires of the tradition of theology of liberation, wherever it may exist in the world, radiate brightly in the heroic witnessing of unsung icons of liberation, living or dead. And they, I submit, play the role, a vital role, within and outside the academy, the church, and in society, the roles of midwives, teachers, mentors for our age, for our theological enterprise, for our duty to help women and men of our time seek and find life-giving answers to the really important questions of human existence. So, friends, let us learn to listen in order to learn from these icons. And I thank you.